All right, let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. We have a lot to cover tonight. God, thank you for the time. I uh, thank you that we have the freedom to talk about you and uh, talk freely of your grace and the gospel. I thank you that we have the freedom to come to a, a church, not a building, but to a group of people where we gather together with fellow sinners um, who have been converted to saints, uh, who struggle through life with uh, the flesh that we possess, trying to figure out how to share this good news that has transformed us, yet uh, trying to figure out how to live lives pleasing to you in just the everyday sorts of difficulties we face. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would help us, that we would gain confidence by the truths that we consider tonight so that we would share your word with boldness and that we would also be challenged um, just by the fact that we're all here together to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. I pray that you'd help me as I communicate, that I would do so with clarity and simplicity, that all that are here would be engaged and uh, ready to discuss and learn. In your name I pray, amen. All right, last week we discussed the facts of the gospel. I suggested, I gave you my five-prong approach to the gospel. I'm wondering if anyone can remember what the first one is. This is, I gave you a cheat sheet. Come on, people. What? God, and what do we need to, what do we need to share with people about God in order for them to be converted? What do they need to know? It's kind of essential, right? He's what? He's our holy creator. That means he's our sinless, perfect creator. There is no impurity or sin within him. Then the second one was man and sin. We, come on, there we go. All right. We are thoroughly sinful. We are creation, not creator. Therefore, we owe our allegiance to God. We owe our obedience to God. He is Lord and King. He gets to tell us what to do, and we disobey. Our disobedience severed the relationship between sinful humanity and sinless God. And that sin also garnered God's just wrath. And then what was the third prong? Jesus. What did what did Jesus do? So first he is he's God, and he did what? So sacrifice. Another S word would be substitute. So he took our place, right? He lived the life, the perfect life that we failed to live. He died the death that we deserved, and then he rose again, conquering death and sin, and Satan, and all the rest. Then, Jesus calls in Scripture us to respond. The response is two-prong approach. It's two sides of the same coin. We do what with respect to our former life? We turn from it, which is the word we call repent. And then, what's the other side of that same coin? Belief. So we repent of our sins, that is, we turn from our old way of life, our sin, and we trust 
in this work that Jesus has done on our behalf. And then the last component of this gospel presentation is promise. And that promise is what? It's eternal life, but what, I mean, let's get a little bit more specific. Because if some Joe Schmo that you're telling the gospel to, like, well, what the heck is that? It, it's more specifically, what does Jesus Christ do for us with respect to God the Father? Yeah, He restores the relationship that our sin is broken, right? Now, I'm not going to read, for sake of time, the 60-second, or in my case, the 75-second uh, version of the Gospel. You all hopefully perfected yours. You know, Tim worked very hard on his um, since he quit last week. But, I encourage you to really, and I know that it was a, a, an assignment last week, but I really encourage you to take some time, even if you haven't done it, or uh, maybe it would be good to refine that that down. I think it, it would be very good, one, for your own heart. No, Siri. And then I think it would also be good because it helps you focus your attention on, okay, what does someone need to know in order to be saved? Because we have, if you've grown up in church, you have a lot of knowledge like floating around up in that brain. But you should know this these components to such a degree that, and I think we talked about this last week, rarely, if ever, do you get the opportunity to go from A to Z with a gospel presentation with someone, right? You're sitting around... Uh, the dinner table with your family at Christmas and your unsaved uncle is there and you're sitting there talking to him and he's not saying, hey, could you t- share with me how I, I could become a Christian today and you start with God and man and sin. You, you never get to, I mean, rarely do you ever get to do that. It's usually you're dropping into some circumstance in their life that really stinks and then you're weaving these things in but all five components are going to be in there in some way, shape, or form. And you got to be able to be so good and know this so well that you can weave that in, in in every conversation that you're in. So tonight, we're uh, shifting a little bit. And the conversation is going to get a little bit uh, heavy. Not in a bad way, but heavy, like I'm going to tax your brains a little bit. I'm trying to make it simple, but it's going to get a little... Um, testy up here. You're still not in Snowburger's class, okay? So we're not at the seminary level, and uh, and, and we're not at Pastor Ken's level. So you are in like the slowest class there is offered. So, but but this is going to be your most intense run of of the uh, the series. So our goal tonight is to discuss the relationship between God's sovereignty and personal evangelism. And specifically, my, my, I have a, a very specific agenda, and it's this, to see that confidence in God's sovereignty actually fuels confidence in personal evangelism. I want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying. If we are confident in God's sovereignty, and we're going to define that shortly, then that confidence in God's sovereignty will... Uh, foster in us it will fuel confidence not in 
like the idea of personal evangelism, it's going to give us confidence as we personally evangelize others. And if we get there tonight, we're going to walk through that whole argument. I'm going to try to defend and prove this statement to you. First, I would like to attempt to define God's sovereignty, but I'm going to need your help. So first question is kind of a doozy, so uh, track with me. Before we get to defining it, I would like to kind of tear down the idea of God's sovereignty a bit to think more deeply about it. So if you were to break down the idea of God's sovereignty into component parts, foundational aspects, what do you think some of those might be? I'm talking like underlying foundational ideas or principles of God's sovereignty. Okay. Yep, he's in control. Just like the basics. He is everywhere. He knows everything. So he's he's omnipresent. He is omniscient. So he's all the op, big omni words in theology. Okay? I, I would say, I would add to that omnipotent, which is he is all powerful. He's the ultimate authority. Okay? Authority. Uh, control, power. You, you guys are actually shocking me. This is great. You're actually nailed my list so far. I have a couple more, but that's really good. Well done. Yes. I, I can't say in one word, but because he's the creator of all, he is the best person to know how we work. Okay. Yep. So, yep, Vince. We're accountable to him. Absolutely. What about uh, sovereign? Think about the term sovereign. What is reign? He rules. He rules, right? Um, one that's kind of tucked in there is the idea of autonomy. Or self-sufficiency, right? If you are sovereign, you don't need anybody else. Especially if we're talking about God's sovereignty, right? He is above all things. He is um, holy in the most real sense of the term holy. He is above, separate, and completely self-sufficient. So you nailed it. Good job. You got all of them. So here's my definition, my attempted definition of God's sovereignty. And I'm going to explain it so I don't make you panic. I think I wrote the word right correctly. It's God's sovereignty, and this is my definition. It might be horribly off. I don't think it is, but it could be. So it's, you're not going to find it in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Pastor Ken has not approved it. I can't. It's your I There you go. It is the inherent right and power of God to control all things as he pleases. It is the inherent right and power of God to control all things as he pleases. And when I thought through, okay, what is sovereignty? How do we break it down and do its most component parts? Power. Control, 
rule, right, authority. He is authorized. Autonomy or self-sufficiency. I tried to encapsulate all of those into my definition. So the inherent. So inherent in God himself, in his character and in his person, he is he has the authority. He is authorized because he's God. Right? It's like he's self-authorized because he is self-sufficient to do whatever he wants to do. So he has the right, the authority, but he has the capability as well. So he has in himself the right and power to control, to sustain, thinking of Hebrews 1.3, where uh, the author describing Jesus says that he sustains all things by the power of his word. So he controls, he does as he pleases. And he does as he pleases in every facet of life without exception. There is no exception. God is in control of all things. So what are some texts that you that might come to mind that um, you might sink your uh, some mental hooks into that would help <coughs> basically prove God's sovereignty? Do any come to mind? Can I raise this up? Can you, or you, I don't know. You can, maybe you can scoot over. Am I, I, no, I don't want, I don't want my stuff to be in the way. All right. Sorry, Julie. Go ahead. Um, Colossians 1, 1 Chronicles 29, 10-13 Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things, and your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. So he, everything is his. It's all yours. Stephen Curtis Chapman, by the way, wrote a great song called Yours. I highly recommend it. Go look on uh, iTunes tonight and buy it. And it was based on this song, or uh, this text. Another one, Psalm 135, verses 5 through 6. I know that the Lord is great, the psalmist says, that our Lord is greater than all gods. And here's the key phrase. The Lord does whatever pleases Him. And where does He do whatever pleases Him? In the heavens? 
and on the earth and the seas and all their depths, everywhere. From the north to the south, east to the west, to as far as creation goes, God does whatever pleases Him. Yes, Vince. When you, when you say pleases, do you is that related to? It's not related to feeling. He doesn't do whatever he feels. No, it's it's God does His will. He executes His plan. You could, and we'll we'll get to some other texts um, later on. But like, for instance, Ephesians one talks about he uses big words like predestination and uh, foreknowledge or before ordains, and it's God has a plan. God executes his plan. It doesn't mean that God is completely devoid of feeling, but God is not uh, whimsical and like, um, I think the the big word is capricious, where he can be manipulated but according to his feelings. Larry, did you say something? I was going to say, if you look at the numbers, I always love this in Psalm 153. So that that was actually one of my other texts. I was just going to, I tried to limit, I have a million texts on my notes, and I was going to try to just give you the other ones and just cite a couple. So Psalm 115.3, if you're taking notes, you could write that down as another text. It basically says the same thing as the psalm that is on the screen right now. Another one is one that I alluded to earlier, Hebrews 1.3. It says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Acts 17, verses 24 through 28. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. So there's that idea of self-sufficiency. Rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So he's the source. He's the creator, as Vince alluded to. From one man, he made all the nations, and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. So he appointed. He had a plan. And he marked them all out. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So, 1 Chronicles 29, 10-13, Acts 17, 24-28, Psalm 115, verse 3, Psalm 135, verses 5-6, through and Hebrews 1, 3. Those would be five texts that you could you could think through that would demonstrate with uh, a fair amount of clarity that God is sovereign. Now, I'm going to remind you of the goal. The goal is to discuss the relationship between God's sovereignty and our evangelism of others. And it's to see that if we have rock-solid confidence in what we just defined, in this inherent right and power of God to control all things as He pleases, as He wills, as He ordains and plans. If we have confidence in that, that should result in confidence as we share the gospel with the lost. So that's what I'm going to try to be uh, connect now. So, 
let's remind ourselves what has been our working definition of evangelism. Remember, this is the step-down class, like the, the, the dumbest of the dumb, right? So, sorry. So, we're, we're class C. So, uh, none of us got stellar grades on our... We're all, like, sub-20 on our ACTs. Lisa, well, I, was pretty, I was pretty close. So, what was evangelism? The very simple version. The junior high version. That's really the appropriate way to put it. Okay, I think I wrote it down. Go for it. Okay. Sharing the Word of God so they can understand the Word of God. Okay. Because you want them to have a desire to learn about His Word. Okay, does anyone remember? So you've got it just longer. Mine was uh, six words. Does anyone remember sharing the Gospel to do what? Make disciples. So sharing the gospel to make disciples. So we need confidence in the inherent right and power of God to control all things as He pleases as we share the gospel to make disciples. Okay. So God's sovereignty and personal evangelism. I'm going to ask you another question that you're probably just going to knock out of the park. It's similar to the first. So when we are sharing the gospel with someone, what are some of the component parts that exist in that specific circumstance? Maybe you think of it like, okay, you're at a play. What are the component parts of that play? Like there's an actor and there's a script and there's a stage and so what would those sorts of component parts be when you're standing there or sitting there sharing the gospel with someone what are those essential things that are present Larry okay so there you said the messenger so we have a messenger that would be you okay so the unbeliever the recipient so the message itself a relationship okay relationship which we'll talk about next week situation exactly yeah absolutely the very fact that you're like in the situation itself right like how in the world did like you actually get there okay so we have message messenger recipient and thus uh, I guess you'd have like between the two of them relationship and then you would have the situation or maybe that would be part of the relationship itself so how does God's sovereignty and again you killed it you, nailed, you got all four of them so well done again here I was nervous the whole day trying to figure <laughs> out how I'm going to get draw this out of you so how does God's sovereignty come to bear on let's just take this first one the opportunity we have to share the gospel. God made the opportunity. What was that? God made the opportunity. It was part yeah. of his plan. Right? It was God's plan that you live next door to your neighbor. And it was God's plan that Tim and I would go to church together and then 
join a hockey team, and then rub shoulders on a weekly basis with a bunch of unbelievers that we've never met in our entire lives. And it's God's sovereign plan for you in your given context, whatever that may be, to have friendships with unbelievers. And it's it's God's plan. I mean, one book that I read talked about, described it as a divine appointment. I'm not, I don't know about, I don't, it kind of sounds weird to me. Maybe I'm just easily weirded out, but, but there is like, there's truth to that. I mean, God ordains all of our steps. Maybe you have employees. It's not by accident that they stumbled upon your door. You looked at their resume and you're like, that looks like a good person. I'm going to hire that person. And we could go down the list, but it's not by accident. God has you in the right place at the right time. So God's sovereignty comes to play in our opportunities to share the gospel, right? So that, in a sense, if we're living our life on mission, which is something that uh, is continually... I don't know, maybe it's not harped on as much as I think it is, but I know like Larry and I spend a fair amount of time together and we talk, it seems like every conversation always comes back in some zigzag form to mission. What is our life mission? And if our life's mission is to be, take that mantle and be ambassadors of God's message of reconciliation, then that means every opportunity that we're in with boldness and with wisdom and with grace we can share the gospel even if it's not necessarily like going right God, man, sin, Jesus right maybe it's just building a relationship asking a dude out on the boat or going skiing or going or just hanging out going out to eat building those relationships so that that pathway can be made so that the gospel can be presented but God is sovereign he is in control of the opportunity. My mind immediately went to Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 8. Read it tonight if you have a chance. Acts 8, verses 26 through 40. In the Spirit of God, it says, Hey, Philip, go do, that. Go do this. Go stand next to this guy's chariot. And he does. And then what was almost like smacked me in the forehead was the idea that what did Philip do? He sat there and waited, saw this dude reading the scroll, and he didn't say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. He asked, actually said, hey, do you understand what you're reading? He asked him a question, which is such a novel idea, and then all of a sudden it just... And Philip got to share the good news, starting from Isaiah and going through. So opportunity. God is sovereign. The second one is the messenger that is delivering the gospel. That's you. So God is sovereign over you. So you might be thinking, man, well, I don't understand. I just don't feel confident. I don't have the boldness. I'm concerned about my safety. I don't want to feel mocked. Or ridicule. 
I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to jeopardize my friendship. And on and on and on we could pile reasons, which we did last in two, why we don't want to share the gospel. But God's sovereignty and confidence in it can help us get over that hump, right? Because God has gifted you and placed you and made you the way he wants you to be. He's made you his image bearer and made you with your unique set of personality and skills. And he knows the knowledge that you have, yet he's put you in this divine appointment opportunity, right? So go live on mission and share the good news. You don't have to know everything. You know enough to be saved, so share that, right? I mean, if you're truly saved, you at least know the essentials. So go and tell them. And don't be bashful. Yes? But uh, something that really helps me is as you do it, is to reap your realization that God is with you. Just to give. Mm-hmm. It gives you confidence to, in your purpose for life. Yeah. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to kind of get there later. I'm sorry. No, 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 you're good. But that's a good point to make now, too. Um, so God is sovereign over you. So even if you were, from a human standpoint, the worst thing that happens is you share the good news and you die. Is God still sovereign? Did God appoint your death when you're sharing that good news? And what's the worst thing that's going to happen to you? You go into the presence of your Savior. Wow, that that really stinks. <laughs> so, God being sovereign over us, His messengers, we are God's ordained means to accomplish God's ordained end. So the end is salvation of the nations, right? To see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation know Christ in a saving way. We are the God-ordained means for that end to be accomplished. Romans 10, verses 14 through 15. Write that reference down. I'm just going to read the last line. It says, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20. I alluded to this earlier. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then what did he do to those who he reconciled? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his, his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we are God's ordained means to accomplish his, his end of salvation of all people. But not only that, God didn't make a mistake in calling you to be his messenger. He uses broken, messed up people like all of us in this room to share this amazing news. 
1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, nor or not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things of the world and things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You see what he says in the underlying section? Paul writes, but God chose the foolish things of the world. That's you and me. He chose dumb people. He chose ugly people. He chose poor people. He chose like the whole gamut. And our foolishness, our lostness, our spiritual bankruptcy and poverty, as the Beatitudes talk about in Matthew 5, is there to shame the wise. God chose us to shame the strong. Not that we're going out saying, you're idiots because you're wise and you think you're wise. We're going out with the good news that tells them that. We're going out with this really amazing message that cuts right to their heart and cuts right to their pride. And He chose us to do that. He chose the lowly, the despised, the things that are nothing to share this amazing message. So how can God's Sovereignty foster confidence in you as you evangelize. How can this fuel it, Vince? One thing you learned in the past with messages that has brought things in the past to bring you to the place where you're at. Okay. Well, we're not in control. So um, I think that helps us maybe um, not just let go and not be this like, stressed about it like we're the ones that. I explain it. <laughs> well, God has called, God has um, identified the place, right? So he's got that all set up for you. And then he's called who to share that good news? Us. Me and you and you all the way through. So how does God's sovereignty, his right and power to control all things, infuse in us as his messenger's confidence? We don't have to do it in our own strength. We do it in his. Yep. And we don't have to stress about the outcome. You know, if somebody does not react the way we hope they will, um, we understand that God is sovereign and their their salvation is in His hands. So we have God is sovereign, and here's the four aspects, or well, yeah, we got the, all four of uh, the personal, the aspects of personal evangelism. Opportunity, messenger, well, what's left? The message and... The recipient. So, God is sovereign over the recipient. 
And this is where, I mean, things can get dicey uh, from a theological standpoint. So I'm going to just, I'm going to read text of scripture to you. And I'm going to also give you a couple others to look at yourself. That's just your interpretation. Yeah, it's just, yes. So I'm going to share these texts. And then we can discuss. And But... I want to keep it to the text of Scripture. I mean, for my comments as much as possible. Because I think this one is a hard one to swallow. But here would be my first point underneath the idea that God is sovereign over the recipient of the gospel. Number one, I don't have it written down up here. I'm just going to give you the text. But number one, God has chosen those whom he will save. Ephesians chapter 1. For he chose us, verse 4, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined. So that would be another term when I say he does whatever he pleases. No, it's not feels what he plans. In love he predestined us for what? For adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So to be part of his family for us to be his child and him to be our father. In accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves later on in verse 11 in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory listen to what he said in the middle of that section it said well i guess i gotta go back having been predestined according to the plan of him listen who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He didn't say works out some things, works out only these things. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So when I hear everything, that that means that there's nothing that falls outside of that scope of those things working out according to his plan. So, 2 Thessalonians, I'm reading this because it's a short text and many people have never actually read it uh, and, and thought about it in context of this discussion. But here in the middle of a prayer, Paul says, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know of a clearer text. God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through faith in the truth. I'm not going to go through all of Romans 9, but I would encourage you to read Romans 9, verses 6 through 29. It's, it's a lengthy text. We don't have time tonight to go through it. But, I mean, it's, it's a very sober, sobering text. I'll just lay that before you. It's a very sobering text. But God, in the middle of it, when he's talking about Jacob and Esau, and he says, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Man. 
Later on it says, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed, creation, say to the one who formed it, creator, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? I mean, this text is weighty. God chooses those whom He will save. Not only that, my point, subpoint under this idea of the recipient is number two, God alone gives spiritual life through the Holy Spirit to those who He will save. God alone gives spiritual life through the Holy Spirit to those He will save. So Ephesians 2, verses 1-10 through 10 would be a great text for you to write down where he talks about how ugly our sin is, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we used to live in a certain way, blinded by the ruler of the world. And then there's this amazing but in verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, verse 5, made us alive. But the text I really would like to get to is Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. I'm choosing the ESV version here um, because it uses a word regeneration in a, I think it's a clearer uh, version in this case in the NIV. But it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Sounds very familiar to Romans 9. Well, how did that get accomplished? How did our salvation become effective? How was that? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So how did our salvation actually become effective in us? How did we be made alive? How were we given eternal life? How were we given spiritual life from our spiritually dead state? It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts of sin in John 15. Maybe John 16. I might be off on that. It's somewhere in the middle of John. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes us to be born again. He is the one who gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead. He regenerates. Now, let me attempt uh, to cast aside some of the stones that might be coming at me. We are not robots. Simultaneously, Scripture affirms without argument or contest that God is completely sovereign over all things, including the salvation of sinful man. And also clearly 
affirms and teaches that man is responsible to repent and believe. And somehow, that mystery makes sense to God and not us. I don't think we can, we have all of our best attempts. We have our theological systems. We try to make it as clear and as simple as possible. But the reality is, is that it is in the area of mystery. That does not mean that we just get to punt and not try to figure it out. We, we have a duty to try to understand what God is saying and how it all pieces together. At the same time, it is beyond our, our ability to fully comprehend. But scripture, uh, some theologians use this, this word called an antinomy. Big word. You're getting your bang for your buck. That ten bucks is coming... But it's the, uh, that means it's, there's an appearance of contradiction. So there's apparent incompatibility between two clear truths. So here you have two clear truths in Scripture. Man is completely responsible to God because they're sinners. They must repent and believe. And God calls them throughout Scripture. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. And then there's other texts of Scripture that say God chose you. I don't know. But they're both true. And we have to hold both of them true. So man is fully responsible. And God is fully sovereign. Now, all of us would agree with that. I think. Yet, there's varying degrees in this room, I know for a fact. There are varying degrees of how God's sovereignty wields its power in the, in, in the conversion of a believer. But I'm going to attempt, even though I think I've made my position very clear, um, I'm going to attempt to find some common ground that at least applies to all of us. That at the end of the day, I would dare to guess that there's not a single person in this room that would say that a human being, a sinful human being who is lost and dead in sin can come to God on their own effort. They can't say, man, I'm a really bad dude. That Jesus is really awesome. I think I'm going to give my life to Him. God doesn't put everybody in a place of neutrality and then say, have at it. At a bare minimum, we would all agree that in God's sovereign working, the Spirit of God must convict and regenerate in order for someone to come to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit's work, wherever you fall on this varying degree of God's sovereignty with respect to a person's salvation, we all, I think, can at least confess that the Spirit of God must precede, His work must precede salvation. No question. So that's that's my song and dance about this. So how can a rock-solid view of God's sovereignty over the salvation of the recipient who you are sharing the gospel with provide confidence to you as you share the gospel with them? I'm, I'm looking for an answer. This is not a rhetorical question any longer. Yes. Okay. The Holy Spirit's work doesn't end with salvation. Correct. It is the 
the reason why we ever gain any maturity mm-hmm. in him at all. Every step in the direction of godliness comes from him. It doesn't come from inside of us. So when you're sharing the gospel with someone, so Sierra's hanging out with some fellow Disney slappy and they're talking about Mickey Mouse and all of a sudden they're planning a trip and the person somehow, somehow, some way they're talking about the gospel. To me, it is incredibly, uh, like it's like a jolt of steroids to think, you know what? I can't convert that person. I have one, I have one job. I need to, as clearly and accurately as possible, communicate the truth of God's Word and trust the Holy Spirit's power in that person's life. Done. Because you know what? You're not going to get it all right every time. <laughs> You're going to be bashful. You're going to stumble. And that, that brings us to the last thing. So we have opportunity, the messenger, the recipient, and then the way in which we communicate the gospel. Romans 1.16 From not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25 I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to show you the first, first line. For the message of the cross is in the same context that we're talking about how God uses foolish people like us to share the good news. Well, he's saying, here's the good news. The message of the cross is foolishness. So not only do I choose foolish people, I give you a foolish foolish message. So here, I'm going to give you foolishness to share, and I'm going to pick foolish people to go share it. I'm going to pick the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those he is saving, what is it? What is it? The end of verse 18. It's the power of God. Only the gospel can can save. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God, the gospel, to save. To me, this is an amazing thing. Because you know what? When I sit there in front of my friend Bobby, or I sit in front of my friend Joe, or my my friend Craig, or whoever it is, and I, and I have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus, I can't convert him. I can't convert any one of them. No matter how persuasive I might try to be, I can't sell the gospel and peddle it like something that they need to buy. So if I stumble over my words, if I'm like, God can use it. God can use my lack of clarity. God can use my confusion. God can use my lack of knowledge. God can use all of that because He's sovereign. He has inherent unto Himself the right and the power to do whatever He wants over all things. So, there we go. If we trust that God is in complete control of every circumstance in which we share the gospel, 
He's in control of us. He's in control of the very situation. He's in control of the recipient. He's in control of the way that our message is perceived and heard by them. If God is in control of those things, we ought to have a massive dose of confidence to go and share the good news with anybody and everybody that we encounter. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? They laugh in our face. Okay. They kill us. Cool. I mean, they can't really do anything to us. I mean, really the worst thing is like, they beat us to the point where we don't die and we have to stay in the hospital. But even that is under God's sovereign control. So we can go with confidence to share the good news with anybody and with everybody because He is in control. So I hope that I accomplished my goal or at least planted the seed in your mind, in your heart, that if you have unyielding, relentless confidence in God's sovereignty, that that confidence will fuel confidence as you go and you share the faith. It's my hope. That's my prayer. That's my, what I hope I was able to accomplish tonight is that the gospel is the power of God. He alone saves. You get to be His ambassador. So go do it with boldness. Let's pray. God, thank You that You are in complete control of all that You have made. You do all that pleases you. There's not a thing that goes on, whether a hair that falls off my head, whether a cloud or a raindrop on the other side of the world, a wave, a pebble, anything that goes on. God, it's all under your hand. God, may we trust you. That these aspects of our personal testimony to others that we might see your hand at work and that we would trust you so that we can share your gospel with boldness. In your name I pray. Amen.